0: This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Rob Tombrella is a pastor at Grace Church and the speaker on this message. We're going to continue our series through the book of 1 Corinthians. We've been calling this series together, and like Craig mentioned, we're going to be talking about a very specific topic uh, this morning. So when you approach the book of 1 Corinthians as we have, we've seen that the church is a church that is confused about a great many things. They were confused about what most pleased God. They were confused about what were the rules for church life and Christian community when we gather together as followers of Jesus. What does that mean for us? Uh, and then they were also confused about what behaviors were acceptable and what were not acceptable. What was in and what was out. What was okay and what was Forbidden. And one of those areas we're going to be looking at today in chapter 6 verses 12 through 20 is the topic of sex. This is a group that was very confused about the topic of sex. What was okay? What was not okay? And to start us off, I'd like us just to read the section together. And if you don't have a Bible, you can uh, get a, uh, a paperback Bible in the seat underneath you or in front of you. And you can turn to page 556. If you don't own a Bible, take that with you. That's our gift to you. So on page 556 is where we are. And we're in chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. I'm going to read and then pray, and we'll get started. Starting in verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant... Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we know that the most appropriate attitude that our hearts could take right now when we read this passage is to let you just speak to us right where we are, to not put the fences up, to not put the guards up, to not build a tower separating us from your truth. We know that you said your truth makes us free, and error and lies bind us up and send us into darkness. So, Lord, there's no fear in opening up our hearts to you right now in this moment and letting you speak to us. So come, Lord, Holy Spirit, speak to us. Right where we are, we open up our lives to you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I would like to ask three questions. And these are three clarifying questions for us this day. But these would be questions that the Corinthian church would have been asking as well as they're hearing this uh, read to them. Here are the three questions. What is sexual immorality? Let's, let's figure that one out. Let's define what that is. Next question. Why are we called to flee from it in this passage? And lastly, what does it mean to flee from sexual immorality? So what is it? Why are we called to flee or run away from it? And what does it mean to flee from sexual immorality? So let's look at verses 12 and 13. And Look how uh, Paul talks about sexual immorality. Look at verse 12. It says, All things are lawful for me. And you'll, you'll notice that that's in quotation. And then he responds to what's in quotation. But not all things are helpful. And you notice there's another phrase. All things are lawful for me. Also in quotation. And then he responds. But I will not be dominated by anything. And lastly, there's another quotation. Food is meant for the stomach. And the stomach for food. And he responds. And God will destroy both one and the other, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So what he's responding to is actually the slogans of the city of Corinth. This is uh, uh, the, the city had slogans and people would repeat the slogans of the city. So just as a reminder, if you're brand new with us, Corinth was a seaport city that was renowned for its commercial success and its money and renown for its sex and its liberty in, in relations to sex and the topic of sex. In the center of the city, if you can just picture this, is a temple that was dedicated to the worship of Epaphrodite, the goddess of love. Which to them translated sex, okay? It had a thousand cult prostitutes who would descend on the city Every evening to sell their services and teach people to literally glorify and to worship sex and to pull people into this cult. In another area of the city was the temple of Apollos, which glorified male beauty and pedophilia. Everything that could go down went down in Corinth. David Pryor writes about it this way. Corinth. Was the biggest city Paul had yet encountered. A brash new commercial metropolis. Squeezing a quarter of a million people into this small area. If the love of Christ Jesus could take root in Corinth. The most populated, wealthy, commercial minded and sex obsessed city of Eastern Europe. It must prove powerful anywhere. So Paul has spent 18 months Planting this church. That's far longer than any other place that he had been up to this point. He spends a year and a half planting the church. And he's very concerned that the, the, the teaching of the city and the culture of the city doesn't infect the, the Christians who put their faith in Jesus. And so these slogans, all things are lawful for me. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach is for food. It was kind of the idea that if you can afford it. And that was also known in that day. It was a very expensive place to live. If you could afford it, there are no boundaries in Corinth. So come, live here, and there are no boundaries. And uh, when it says food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the food, essentially it means that um, whatever, whatever your appetites are, if you have a feeling for an appetite, then just meet that and just satisfy that. And so when it came to sexual immorality... Paul is saying something exactly the opposite of that. He's saying the body is not meant for sexual immorality, which would have been a radical thought to Corinthians. What are you talking about? If, it, if my body desires sex, why would I not give over its, whatever it desires? So that's a, a really radical thought. And he's been talking about that throughout the book of 1 Corinthians. And he uses the word porneia, porneia, to describe sexual immorality. And essentially that means sex outside of marriage between one man and one woman. Any sex outside of marriage between one man and one woman. Now he has already talked about incest in the church. As we saw a couple of weeks ago. He has addressed adultery which is sex with a married person. He'll talk about fornication which is sex with an unmarried person. He's mentioned homosexual acts and forbid that. And now he's talking about prostitution, but he's not just camping out on prostitution in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He's using prostitution as an example of sexual immorality, which is mentioned three times. The word, word porneo, which means sexual immorality, which covers a lot of things, is mentioned three times. And so think, when you think prostitution, don't think he's just talking about prostitution, although that was an issue among the Corinthians. He's talking about sex, any sex outside of marriage. And so you could also include here anything that involves lust of the heart. So Jesus said if you look at a person intentionally lustfully, you've broken God's law that forbids adultery. So it's any sexual acts, listen to this, real or imagined or fantasized outside of marriage between one man and one Woman. Now it's important in this moment that all of us recognize that this is a test we have all failed. We have not all failed in the same ways, we have not all failed to the same degree. We do not share the exact same sexual temptations and struggles but we have all failed it doesn't help for people who've all failed a test to share the grades with each other on how we all failed well you got a you got a 30 well at least i got a 40 no well, i got a 60 well it's of no consequence we've all failed the test, we, we've all broken this command. We've all committed some form, one way or another, of sexual immorality. And we need to recognize that. It would be foolish for us not to recognize that. So let's look at the next question. Why are we called to flee from it, to run away from it? Well, this is where we're going to spend most of our time here this morning. And it's really important that we do because it's interesting that the Apostle Paul does not go towards the things that we would think would be most motivating and what sometimes is most motivating in our own lives in terms of sexual immorality. He does not go to personal guilt or shame. He doesn't say flee or run from it because of the personal guilt you might experience through it, although it will cause personal guilt. He does not mention that it could end your marriage. Or that it could end someone else's marriage. It could, but he doesn't mention it. He, he's not, in this section, going to talk about the hurt that it brings to your family or to your friends. He doesn't mention that you could lose your job. He doesn't talk about the dangers associated with sexual immorality like depression and anxiety or disease He's not going to mention how porn and prostitution actually fuels global sex trafficking around the world. Multi-billion dollar industry. It was, it was live then and it's an even bigger issue today. So all of those reasons could be true and motivating, right? All of those are motivating reasons. And he will address some of those in other places in 1 Corinthians. But none of those reasons are more significant than the gospel and and the way that the gospel promises this new way that God dwells within sinners in the new covenant, which is what he's going to talk about. God dwells with sinners in a spectacular way in the new covenant. And he's going to describe it three, three ways specifically. First... He says in verse 13 and 14 that our bodies are meant for Jesus. Do you see that word, meant for? It's a radical concept. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for The body, and so for Corinthians, the spirit is what mattered. If they believed in the spirit, if they believed in the gods, it was all the spirit that mattered, not the physical body. The physical body was either of no consequence or it was just evil. So who cares about the physical body? So if if your stomach wants something, fill it. If your sexual organs want something, meet the need. The body wasn't meant for spiritual things. Among the city of. Corinth, And here Paul is going to share the gospel and talk about God. And he's talking about how God raised the Lord. That's the the master Jesus. He's talking about Jesus here. And so he's referencing how in Genesis, God created man and woman and declared that they were good. Now that's a radical concept to the Corinthians. That God would create flesh and bone human beings and say that's good. That's good. And even though... Men and women turn their back on God, Adam and Eve did, and all of humanity walked out of the garden along with Adam and Eve. God enters into the human experience through Jesus and takes on flesh and takes on bones to bring sinners back into a relationship with God. And that's what he says right there. And God raised The Lord. He raised Jesus from the dead, raised him physically, not just spiritually, raised his physical body up out of the tomb, and then he connects that to us and will also raise us up by his power. So those who put their faith in Jesus. When he came up out of the tomb, there's a promise that we also will be raised, and not just spiritually, not just a spiritual resurrection, but a physical resurrection. So resurrection is at the heart of the gospel message. And when you think resurrection, it's not just death to life. It's not just turning the the lights from off to on. You were dead and you were alive. As powerful and as, as amazing as that is, but it's redeeming the human body, flesh, and bones to something better than what was experienced at the garden. It's not just going back to the garden to, to sort of pre-sin state to where we all go back to the garden and we exist as Adam and Eve existed in the garden. When Jesus came up out of the tomb, it wasn't going back to the garden. It was redempt, redemption fully into something that was new and better, a better Creation than even what was experienced in the garden. That was Jesus' experience when he came up out of the tomb. And so Paul is referencing hey, Jesus not only took on flesh and blood, not only did God take on bones, and so in and of itself it can't be evil, but those who are created in the image of God, and even though they have fallen away from God, Jesus redeems and hits his intention to raise the physical body up. And so he's elevating the physical body, far beyond the Corinthians can even imagine up to this point. This would be a shocking kind of summary of how God thinks about physical bodies. And if you don't think that God cares about your body or other people's bodies, if you're tempted into this same error that the Corinthians had, you'll be tempted to abuse it. You could hate your body. You could hate other people's bodies and be tempted to self-harm or just blatant neglect. You'll be tempted to objectify it through sexual immorality, through looking at pornography or engaging in, in things that just objectify the physical body or even worship it to a point where you're trying to preserve it and rescue it back and pull it, pull it back and maintain it and not let it go old and just go crazy on the All the things that you can do these days to try to preserve youth because that's where it's all at. And just kind of worship the the physical body. But Paul is saying, listen, Jesus says something far better. He redeems it and he makes it something new. One commentator says it like this. The human body that that Paul has in mind here is the raw material of a more glorious creation. The raw material of a more glorious glorious creation. You should just write that like over your mirror when you wake up in the morning, especially for you older folks and you're just looking at, you know, youth is gone or it's fading. You should just write over your mirror. Okay, it is, but it's the raw material of a more glorious creation. Jesus is going to raise us up and make us all new and better. But secondly, he says that our bodies are joined To Jesus, not just meant for, but joined to, joined to. So look at verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? So you just pause right there. And before he goes to verse 16, he says, never. So there's a shocking statement that he's saying in verse 15. You can guess that members here means bodies. But it actually means not just bodies, but body parts. Shall I take my body parts that belong to Christ and make them body parts of a prostitute? And again, he's not... He's not just singling out prostitutes or prostitution. He's just talking about sexual immorality. He's, for instance, prostitution, which was prevalent in Corinth. It, it literally means, shall I tear the limbs and the organs that belong to Jesus and make them the organs of a prostitute? And that's a shocking question. I mean, if, you, if you're visualizing that, that's just grotesque and bizarre. And it's supposed to have that effect. We're supposed to read that and say, that's, that's crazy talk. Of course not. That's why the immediate answer is never. Well, why? Look at verse 16. Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. So listen, joined to equals The phrase, becoming one body with. So being joined to is synonymous with becoming one. Not two just physical bodies doing something and then we're gone. No. One body with, which equals becoming one flesh. Do you hear the the mingling language between the physical and the spiritual together? He's saying it's impossible to separate the physical from the spiritual. And then he, he clarifies it. In, he almost goes all the way. And he's, he doesn't say you become one spirit. But he does talk about that in terms of the Lord. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So. Joining to means becoming one with, becoming one flesh with. So listen, we are never just physical beings. That's what Paul is laboring for the Corinthian church to know. We are spiritual beings. And sexual intercourse intertwines not just two bodies, but two souls, two eternal souls. Two eternal souls made in the image of God. And that's why he's going to say it's reserved for those Who are committed to living as one flesh beyond the bedroom. Because you can't just have this one flesh relationship in the bedroom. Or in a sexual tryst. And then just kind of, we'll just quickly separate. And it'll not cause any damage. It's going to cause damage. Paul says in Ephesians, no one ever hated his own flesh. But nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. That's how he comes to dwell in us. Like he comes to inhabit us. Individually and corporately. And we're members of his body. And then he says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. He says, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. So there's a lot that can be said about the profound mystery of marriage and difficulties of marriage and the joys of marriage. But he's saying, listen, what it really symbolizes is this union spiritually with Christ the Lord and people like us, sinners, fallen people, being joined together into a oneness between Christ and the believer. And, And just in case you didn't think it was that close. Listen, this word joined, some of your translations might say united means glued and cemented together. Two personalities now becoming cemented and glued together. And that's the picture of the gospel. When we put faith in Jesus, through his spirit we are cemented to God. We still retain our personality. You are still you and I'm still me. And Jesus is still Jesus. We don't enter into some kind of deity. We're not, you know, deified people or something weird like that. We are still us, but our personalities are now mingled together and glued together and cemented together. And uh, if that's a lot to take in, I agree, it's a lot to think about. Theologians historically have called this idea of being joined and united to Christ as union with Christ. Union with Christ. It's where we're spiritually one with Christ. And a simple definition is, is simply this. Union with Christ means to be spiritually as close as close can be. Paul says, Corinthian church, listen, through faith in Jesus and through his spirit that now dwells in you, Jesus is as close as close can be. You can say, well, wait just a second. The reason I'm tempted towards sexual immorality, the reason I'm moving towards sexual immorality or involved in something sexually immoral in my life Is because I want to feel something. And I don't feel that. I don't feel like Jesus is as close. As close. Can be. For crying out loud. That's why. I want the rush. I want the adrenaline. That comes through stepping over. Some boundaries of sexual immorality. Because at least I'm feeling something. What well, 's very important when we talk about union with Christ that we don't confuse it with communion with Christ. So union with Christ, which Paul's talking about here, is the eternal, unchanging and fixed and never wavering reality that Christ comes to dwell in sinners eternally and forever. When we honestly and truly surrender our lives to him. He comes and takes up residence. And he's not going to go anywhere. And he's unchanging. And Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he comes to dwell in us in an eternal unchanging way. But communion with Christ means what we experience of that union with Jesus. Which is subject to change. And does rise and does fall for a great many reasons. But one of the ways that we diminish or suffer our communion with Christ is owing to sin and neglect. And so listen, if you are tempted to continue to follow through in something sexually immoral in your life, you could be here today and you're like, I don't know how to say no to this. Well, he's saying right here, listen, yes, there's going to be some some painful scars that you're not going to be able to avoid horizontally whenever you break that off. With that individual. You don't think that that's not going to cause. Some, some painful scars. That you're going to need to walk through. And it might stay with you for a very long time. Afterwards. So there's that horizontal aspect. But he's saying the greatest pain. Will be the diminished joy. And peace of the Spirit of Christ who dwells in you now being replaced by spiritual confusion and depression and anxiety and a lack of assurance. Folks who wander into sexual immorality, when you've wandered into sexual immorality, have you ever asked the question, Am I even a Christian? Am I even a believer? I don't even think I'm saved. I don't even know what joy of the Lord is anymore. My peace is gone. My joy is gone. And you can try to fake it outwardly. But sexual immorality has a way of just stepping into the darkness where there's a lot of confusion and fear and depression. Because there's a lack of truth there. So it's important that we know that our bodies are meant for Jesus. And that he dwells in us spiritually in a very powerful, significant way. But look at verse 18. He he says to flee also because our bodies are bought by Jesus. Meant for, joined to, and bought by. So in verse 18, he's going to say, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. That's a fascinating place to lead out with because we could tell story after story of the hurt that sexual immorality causes horizontally. And as I've already mentioned, that there's a motivating effect to realize that it could really hurt some people in my life. Will hurt some people in my life. But it's actually not where he starts. He says every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Why? Why? Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Notice that language. The Holy Spirit now dwells within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. He says, listen, your members and your limbs now belong to Jesus. If he dwells in you, you are now a sanctuary and a temple. You're something holy and set apart for God who now dwells in you. And he dwells in you all the way, holistically. He owns your mind. He owns your eyes. He owns your hands and your feet and your sexual body parts as well. He owns it all. And he purchased all of that. He bought all of that with his body. His body was completely broken on the cross. Visible to the display of everybody hanging naked on the cross. Blood coming down from his head and his hands and his feet, running down his body. A spear puncturing his body and blood and water flowing out over his body to buy back our bodies all the way. Wholesale. Everything. Belonging. To him. Redeeming it fully. I met a guy a couple of years ago. We were doing this car wash. This free car wash as a church. And he. um, I mean this guy drove in with this amazing vintage sports car. This illustration would be so much better if I remembered the kind of sports car it was. But I don't. Sorry. I just don't remember things like that. But it was. Cherry red, remember the color, it was beautiful. I want to say it was a Corvette or a Mustang, either way, it's in the 60s vintage car. And I was surprised that he let us wash it, frankly. I was like, is this okay? We're not professional car, we're just a bunch of people from church that are trying to do nice things for the community. Is this okay for us to wash your car? And uh, he said, oh, absolutely. He says, let me tell you the story of this car. He said, I've, I, this was the first car I ever owned as a 17-year-old young man. I was like, seriously, you've been able to maintain? It was a beautiful car. I mean, it looked brand new, totally restored car. It's like, you've been able to maintain this car for all those years, I mean, 30, 40 years that you've been able to maintain this car. And he's like, actually, no. He said, uh, about 10 years ago, I bought it. Uh, this was the car I owned when I was 17, and I went off to fight in the war. And I gave it to my brother. My brother had owned it. And he sold it to somebody. And that person sold it to somebody. And that person sold it and sold it and sold it. And they lost track of the car. And he always missed this car. He always wanted this car back. I mean, he just loved this car. He had memories of this car. And he, he, just, he just wanted the car back. So he, later on in life, gets to this place where he now has the means to purchase a vintage, this vintage car. And so he starts looking online, just trying to find uh, car after car, just trying to locate a car that was exactly the same year, exactly the same thing, so he could have the memories that he had in this car. And so he, uh, he sees a couple of options, but none of them, none, they all fall through until so finally, I mean, I think he set out in Midland or something like that. Uh, through eBay or something, he sees a car that looks similar to the car he drove when he was in high school. He gets out there. He looks over this car. He's excited about the idea of restoring a car that looks like his, his old car. And as he's looking it over, he sees the dents that he made in the car. And he he recognizes things that were unique to his car when he gave it to his brother all those many years ago. And he realizes that, wait a second, this is my car. This is my car. And so he asks the lady, where did you get this car? And she says where she bought it from. And he tracks that down and tracks it and traces it all the way back to his brother and realizes that this is my car. And so listen to this. He, it wasn't running. It was just in a garage. It had been sitting there for years. It was just Paint was all gone, engine, I mean, nothing was working about this car. He, he bought the car and step-by-step step restored the car to its pristine condition of where it is today, just driving it around town. And, and he, brought, he brought it back to life, literally brought, brought the, I mean, not only had to put engine in it and get it to where it was running and starting again, but restored it completely. And the, the, the best part was he left some of the dings still in that. Not, not visible to us, not, not known to us. You, he had to point them out to me and tell the story about where and how he got those, those dings in the car. But when he restored it, he restored it and he left, he left the dings in there. When we're bought back by Jesus, he restores us and he redeems us. He still sees the scars and we still know what Happened back then. But they're visible only to him. Well let's close with this. What does it mean to flee from sexual immorality? What does this mean? Because you could be hearing all of this and saying. I I hear what you're saying. But I, I don't really know what it means to run away. Or to flee from sexual immorality. Well that word flee is very important to this topic. Flee ...from sexual immorality. That means anything that's tempting you... ...anything that you're involved in... ...anything that you're about to do... ...flee. Which means to escape... ...and to run away... ...as fast as you can. That's literally what the word means. So run would be powerful. Run away. But flee means escape and run away... ...as fast as you possibly can... And if you think Paul's just being kind of prudish about this topic of sexual morality, and he's just being a little bit over the top, he is just echoing the sexual ethic that Jesus taught from the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus said, You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, Tear it out and throw it away. That's exaggerated language, yes, but radical language in terms of how we take strong action and radical action uh, uh, regarding anything that's dragging our hearts away from God. He says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better for you to lose one of your members than that your whole body Go into hell. And so, listen, Jesus said some radical things about how we respond to sexual immorality because the dangers are so prevalent and we can be so easily pulled away, not only into sex, but away from God. And that's what Jesus is warning about. One one commentator said it this way Temptations towards sexual immorality was so common in Corinth that mere disapproval would never work. Strong, evasive action was necessary. Strong, evasive action. You know, I grew up in Galveston. And, uh, you know, you hit hurricane season in Galveston and you see a hurricane coming. And you take strong, evasive action when you see a hurricane coming. But do you know that the leading cause of weather-related deaths in the U.S. is not hurricanes? Not tornadoes, not blizzards. Anybody know what they are? Flash floods. Do you know why they are? Because they are familiar and they are ignored. And half of the deaths related to flash floods are car related. So people are in the car and they see, I can get past this. I can just drive on through it. And sexual immorality is the familiar but deadly flash flood that will take you under if you do not heed the warnings. Listen, it's deeper than you think. And it's stronger than you think. And so heed the warnings and turn the car around. Now, can you remember a time when you experienced running as fast as you could from something? This might, take a, this might be a little difficult. Think back to a time when you actually ran away as fast as you could, as if your life depended on it. For some of you, you're going to have to think way back to like a childhood memory. I can remember the first time I heard the clap of, a, of Texas thunder. I was in the garage by myself. And I, heard, I was alone by myself in my garage in Round Rock. I heard the clap of a Texas thunderstorm. And I ran as fast as I could into the house, much to the laughter of my family. And I didn't care because I was scared to death. And I still can't sleep in Texas thunderstorms. People say, oh, I love Texas thunderstorms. I love to sleep. I think, you're crazy. I love Texas. I love Texas. But I hate Texas thunderstorms. And I can't sleep a wink when they, when they start up. Um. Uh, The most recent time I I ran from something as fast as I could was from a wasp nest (laughs) in my backyard. And I had a can of wasp spray and I was ready for all those little boogers. I was like, I was like, come on, boys, look at this. You know, I just love to act all manly in front of my boys. And so I get up to this wasp nest and I've got this can. I shake and I think I've got plenty in the can. I thought I did, and I didn't. So I start to spray this thing, and I start to get them. And you know, at first, they're just kind of like, not sure what happens. I ran out of spray, and they all start, they all start at me. And It was a big wasp mess. They all start, they're they're buzzing around, and I ran. I dropped the can and ran as fast as I could out of the backyard, into the front yard, neighbors outside looking at me. And then you kind of do that thing where you slow down a little bit, like you kind of meant to it, like you're running short sprints or something for exercise. (laughs) And listen, when you run away as fast as you can from something, listen, it takes a little bit of humility and a whole lot of danger. You mix those two things together, danger and a little bit of humility where you don't care, and and, and you just run and you just go for it. And so when you think about running away and fleeing from sexual immorality, it's just important to think about, what do I need to do? Well, you just need to humble yourself. You need to ask for help. All it takes is a little bit of humility. You have to not worry about what somebody's going to say to me if I raise my hand and say, I'm, I'm caught up in something and I need help. And can, can somebody just resolve today to say, you know what, I'm not going to go another day with this confusion in my life, this darkness in my life, with this temptation in my life. I'm going to raise my hand. I'm going to exercise a little bit of humility and I'm going to run away as fast as I can and I'm going to ask for help. I'm going to ask God's forgiveness and I'm going to ask help. From somebody in my life. Well I wish I could say. That all we have to do. To run away from sexual temptation. Is just the temptation itself. But you know that the devil doesn't just tempt us. With sexual immorality. That might be an easy win for us. Like it's just sexual temptation. So if I just get past that then I'm I'm okay. The devil also accuses and the devil also condemns. And here's how the cycle works. You fall into sexual sin, sexual temptation, and then you hear the accusing voice of the devil saying something like, You did that? You did that? You thought that? You went there? You crossed that line? That's accusation. The cycle continues into condemnation. Well, since you did that, don't think for one second God cares about you anymore. You're done with God, and you're done with the church, and you're done with grace, and you're just done. That's condemnation. And the interesting thing about accusation and condemnation is it always follows, what do you think? Temptation. Well, since you're done, since you're a failure, and since God doesn't care about you anymore, would you like to do it again? Now, if we're honest, we all have experienced this cycle of temptation and accusation and condemnation. So it's so important that we end this sermon on verse 19 and 20. Listen to what Paul says. Or do you not know that your body is, 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 is? Do you see that Paul is talking to people who have sinned and people who have failed and people who have struggled and people who have made mistakes? But he is saying, listen, if you are a follower of Jesus, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you. He says, the Holy Spirit hasn't gone anywhere, whom you have from God. He doesn't say who you had until you blew it. You had the Holy Spirit. Now you need to go get resaved. You need to I don't know, trek back down some spiritual pr- pilgrimage back to Jesus. Not if you're a true follower of Jesus, not if you're born again, you have the Holy Spirit from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body, Corinthians. If you failed, get back up, repent of your sins, ask for help and glorify God. In your body, who is within you. You are still a temple. God's not done with you. God's not finished with you. Don't listen to the voice of accusation. Don't listen to the voice of condemnation. That's how we saw last week where he finished that whole little section uh, in... in Verses 9 through 11, he says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, sinners, sinners left to themselves doing their own behaviors don't inherit the kingdom of God. But he says, you're not just a sinner. Yes, you sin, but you're not just a sinner anymore. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. He's not going anywhere. He has not left you you may have wandered into something you need to repent of and acknowledge that, but He's not left you. So here's how we're going to close. We're going to close with praying. If you could all stand with me. we am just going to take a moment and close by praying, and we're going to dismiss. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.